You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. A tentative debt deal has been reached, but it's not a done deal yet. We look at the hurdles that remain and how it could impact banks, inflation, and the Fed. If it does pass, is a rate pause out of the question? Our market guest weighs in with the one trade he's eyeing right now, regardless of which way the Fed goes in June. Plus, there's an item in the debt deal that could be especially problematic for consumers and the economy. That's especially true given the timing. Mark Zandi is here to explain why he's worried. And shares of Coinbase are rallying on an upgrade this morning. Bitcoin hitting its highest level since the beginning of May. Seems like crypto has some momentum again, but one of our guests is not buying into the hype. He tells us what he's buying instead. Before all that, though, let's start with today's markets. And you see the Dow is still negative by about 128 points or a third of a percent decline. More importantly, the S&P 500 up three and a half points, but staying above this 4,200 level closing there at the end of last week really gave people a lot of confidence in the idea that this rally could be sustained for some time. The Nasdaq leading the way again today with about a half of 1% gain. Uh, That's helped by a nearly 4% pop in NVIDIA, which pushed the stock not only to all-time highs, but into that $1 trillion market cap zone, a 405, about a dollar above that trillion dollar level. Again, this is just more people piling into the trade, makes it the first U.S. chip maker to ever hit that $1 trillion market milestone. Tesla is also one of the top gainers in the S&P. And it comes as Elon Musk heads to China for the first time in three years. Three and a half percent gain in Tesla to just shy of 200 a share today. And we have to point out what's happening with crude. WTI down more than 4% right now, dipping back below $70 a barrel uh, at this moment. We're pretty much just sitting here at session lows, as you can see, into the close. This amid uncertainty over the debt deal and OPEC talks. WTI is down 9% this month on pace for its worst month since September. So a little bit of a fly in the ointment of the risk on trade, or perhaps just a sign uh, that supply can come back online. But we begin with the latest on that debt deal. The bill could face a tough path in the House if GOP opposition grows. Eamon Javers, live in Washington with the latest. Hi, Eamon. Hey there, Kelly. It's beginning to look a lot like getting a deal done was the easy part. Now the challenge is getting the votes to pass the debt ceiling bill on Capitol Hill. We just heard from the conservative House Freedom Caucus a few moments ago where some members are expressing dismay over the terms of the deal Speaker McCarthy negotiated with President Biden. This deal fails fails completely. And that's why these members and others will be absolutely opposed to the deal and we will do everything in our power to stop it and end it now. Now that tees up a possibly tense moment later on this afternoon with the House Rules Committee expected to meet at 3 p.m. to begin to move this legislation. That panel is controlled by Republicans by a 9 to 4 margin. So if three Republicans on the panel vote against the rule, allowing the bill to move forward, that could kill the deal unless the panel's Democrats also vote to pass it. So that could present a challenge here for the Speaker, who's working with an extremely thin majority overall. The entire Republican conference is expected to meet this evening to discuss the deal, and the bill moves to the House floor as early as tomorrow if all goes well there. Now, because President Biden backs the deal, most Democrats are expected to support it as well. But there have been complaints from some House liberals that the deal gives away too much to Republicans. So it's not exactly clear yet how many votes Biden is going to be able to muster to pass his deal either. So challenges for Democratic and Republican leadership here. Would you you say at this time, Eamon, that they are mostly kind of expected or anticipated challenges? Or at what point does this start to kind of cloud the prospect of really getting it done? 
Yeah, well, I think we're going to have a good picture of that at 3 o'clock when we see the House Rules Committee meet. We'll see if they're able to iron that out. Uh, I think if they do that at 3, then you'll have a good sense that this thing is on a glide path to passing in the House of Representatives. If there's any uh, squirrely moments there, then you look at this uh, House Republican conference meeting this evening and see if there's like sort of open rebellion in the ranks. That could give you a sense of there, if there's really a problem or not. So far, no indications that this is not going to pass, right? Um, but just something to watch as we go through the afternoon. Yeah, great point. Eamon, thank you. We appreciate it. You Eamon bet. Javers. Some have worried the debt deal could spark more bank outflows, higher interest rates, and a more hawkish Fed. But my next guests say the agreement will be good news for the markets. Joining me now are Evan Brown, Portfolio Manager and Head of Multi-Asset Strategy at UBS, and James Pethokoukis, Economic Policy Analyst at AEI and a CNBC contributor. Welcome to you both. Jimmy, I'll just start with you. Not that I normally ask you for, you know, your S&P price targets or anything, but um, do you broadly think that this will be taken in stride as a good thing for markets and that it should be? Uh, I think absolutely. Uh, you know, certainly major banks are, uh, are assuming there's going to be deal. The kind of people who advise major banks uh, assume there's going to be deal. Uh, so if there was not going to be deal, a deal, I think we would already be seeing it uh, as Eamon, I like Eamon's phrase, squirrely moments. Uh, we haven't seen those squirrely moments. The people who you would kind of expect to be bad-mouthing this deal are. Uh, so that's, that's not shocking. And again, I think, you know, if everything goes smoothly at this Rules Committee meeting later, uh, again, a very positive sign that really supports the kind of confidence you're seeing on Wall Street right now. Jimmy, why is it, and, and you know, I've pointed this out before, but so a decade ago when we had the, the really bad debt ceiling fight, we had half the debt to GDP that we currently have. Interest rates were way lower. I mean, why were we so obsessed with it back then? And suddenly this time around, it's like, eh, no big deal. Well, I think, right. I think, I think broadly people are thinking about the debt a little bit differently. Uh, it doesn't that, that the fact that we've had much, uh, much higher debt to GDP ratios, uh, but yet we still had low interest rates. Uh, I think it's helped support the idea that perhaps we have a you know, greater sort of runway on our debt than we thought previously. Uh, also, uh, listen, the, uh, the econ after the pandemic, we expected the debt to go up. That has happened. And I think just among voters, there just isn't the sort of concern that we saw previously, whether that's right or wrong. Yeah. So, Evan, I thought you also made the you know, point kind of pushing back against the, some of the narratives going around that, OK, a deal isn't necessarily going to be a bad thing. You know, people have been concerned, OK, this is going to trigger more uh, because, again, people who want to put their money in government money market funds have been waiting for this to happen. So the idea is, OK, we're going to start to drain reserves out of the banking system again or deposits. Why do you think that concern is overblown? Yeah, this this idea that liquidity is going to be drained from the system is uh, we certainly think is overblown for a few reasons. So first, uh, there's plenty of reserves in the banking system. Uh, so even though you're going to see some decline in reserves, the overall level is fine. Uh, second, you know, Janet Yellen is no rookie with this stuff. She understands that the, the, the way the financial system works, and she's not going to issue tons of, of T-bills into the market without uh, having an idea of, of financial market functioning. And then finally, there's just not that a strong a causal link between the reserves in the system and what happens to risk assets. Banks don't need as many reserves to, to drive buying stocks or, or, or lending out to consumers or businesses. So do you think that the system is going to be, you know, at all tested uh, in the next coming months? Or do you think that that whole experience is largely behind us? I think we'll see some draining of liquidity, but it's not going to be this, this major thing that a lot of people are calling for. Another point is that 
so much of, uh, of of the liquidity is is from money market funds who are invested in the Fed's overnight uh, repo facility. So it's just money coming out of there and into bills. Uh, so the actual decline in reserves on the banking system just won't be that much. So I think I think a lot of this is overblown. So let me then kind of close with a quick comment from each of you on the outlook for the months to come. Jimmy, it's kind of widely assumed that based on leading indicators and the rest of it, you know, we're going to tip into a recession at some point, maybe in three to six months time. I don't know exactly when. Um, do you, what, what would you say about that assumption based on the way markets are trading and the fact that we seem to keep climbing this wall of worry and, um, you know, coming out the other side? Oh yeah, oh yeah. That it really is sort of a classic situation where you're climbing a wall, worry right into a downturn. Uh, listen, I, I I think the case for for a downturn uh, sort of uh, remains intact. You could even make the case the longer it takes to happen, the more severe it will be. Uh, but I, I I think those financial indicators and stressors uh, are, are there, and I, I I that would still be my expectation. That that the financial stress is meaning that we're going to still have this ma- this broader downturn. Yeah, 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 yes, yes, and, and 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 to be sure, I think things are fragile enough that if there was a that there was a last because the expectations are we're going to get a deal, no deal. I mean, I think that's the kind of shock we absolutely don't need right now. Right, Evan. Though, are there other shocks that you're worried about, and and what do you think about the business cycle at this point? Yeah, look, I I mean. The Fed will keep tightening. That looks quite likely now that we're past this this debt ceiling deal. But they're they're tightening in large part because growth is fine, right? I, it, yes, we see some leading indicators weakening, but we also see the housing market looking like it's it's bottoming. We're also seeing some of the internals of ISM manufacturing also inflect higher. So as much as these leading indicators have been have been decelerating, that's been happening for a long time, and now we're actually seeing some tentative green shoots. So uh, overall, we think it's a decent environment over the next few months for the market. Do you think the labor market just stays, you know, doing what it's doing? Or it was interesting, even in the conference board um, index this morning, the household assessment of labor markets had had dropped substantially. So it seems like households are telling us something. You know, if we could look at only one print, it would probably be initial jobless claims and then also continuing jobless claims. And initial jobless claims, after rising for a little bit, have really stabilized over the last couple of months. Continuing jobless claims are coming down. So, you know, we should expect some labor market softening. And that's what we're, we're seeing when you look at, at payrolls. But it's so slow. It's such a slow slowdown in the economy that there's just no indication that, that we're going to fall off a cliff. All right. We'll leave it there. Gentlemen, thank you both for your time today. Evan Brown of UBS and James Pethokoukis. Zeroing in now on the banks in particular, my next guest says even with one more rate hike, bank balance sheets are adjusting and the regionals are so beaten down that they're a buy here, especially if you play it through the KRE regional bank ETF. Joining me now is Mark Avalon, president of Potomac Wealth Advisors. Mark, it's good to see you. Welcome. Good to be here. You know, maybe that should feel like a safe call, but it still feels like going out on a limb a little bit because the banks, I mean, the banking system can just be its own animal. And what gives you the confidence to say, especially buying, you know, an ETF with exposure that, you know, this is safe for treading here? Well, it's not a it's not an easy trade and it's not today run out and buy this. It's the reality that it's down significantly off its peak. And it was largely because of an asset liability mismanagement and pricing of bonds on SBB's bank uh, balance sheet. Every day that 
goes forward, where rates have stabilized and they're even a little lower off their highs. Every day, bonds in a bank portfolio mature closer to par. So the thought that there's continued deterioration if we have stable rates is unfounded. And if rates start to drip down a little, and we think the Fed is at or around the last of its rate hikes, we think the balance sheet of banks in the financial system is going to improve. And investors have overreacted. It's it's understandable. But you want to go where the value is. And I would rather be in a beaten down sector that was sold off on emotion than one that's being bid up on a lot of hype and promise and is overvalued by historical standards. Meaning defense, aerospace, industrials, areas we've talked to you about before that you like. Um, so what do you think is going on with tech stocks or, or NVIDIA or the AI boom? I mean, however you want to describe it. Well, I've, I've always said we never abandoned the tech trade, and I'm glad we didn't. But that was mostly because we thought in a slowing growth environment, investors would want tech. Frankly, a little, a little underestimated the impact of this AI frenzy, as did a lot of people. So at this point, we're not getting out of tech, even though we feel it's fully run up and could is vulnerable, but we're not allocating new money. I think it's a long-term investment to be in these big mega cap names if you try to time them too much, look, you could have missed a great move from NVIDIA if you had gotten out when it was near $100 a share just a few months ago. So they moved too far, too fast, but I wouldn't back up the truck and build a balanced portfolio around an area just because it's the hottest sector. And and why, just kind of going back to, to circle in on your point about the regional banks, why not, you know, pick name by name, maybe a, a name that you know has been a strong performer, you have, you know, some personal knowledge of, as opposed to the ETF where, you know, there's there's a lot in there for better or for worse. I, I thought you were going to ask that, and I came up with the answer that unless I'm reading the bank's reports they're following with the Fed, and I'm combing through every annual report and doing the asset liability analysis myself, and I know about the commercial loan portfolio and what's under the hood, I am going to diversify that single bank risk away. One other thing I didn't mention on a positive on, on regional banks is they do not own a significant amount on a relative basis of commercial real estate. So I don't think their their loan books are perilous uh, relative to some other banks, more concerned about some smaller banks with higher percentage of uh, real estate commercial loans. So I think in general, the balance sheets of these banks are strong. They're going to improve. And I would rather have a diversified basket of them as opposed to one bank that might give me an unpleasant surprise. He had the answer ready to go. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense from that point of view. Mark, thanks for your time today. It's good to see you. Wait, by the way, before I let you go, just a parting comment, 4,200 on the S&P, you know, we've cleared the debt ceiling and all the rest of it. What do you tell people about simply the next move for the equity market? And is it a move that is fundamentally justified to you or just a momentum kind of play? I think if we're talking in early next year, people will be glad they stayed in the market. But if they think it's going to be without a bumpy ride, whether it's the getting this trade deal, this uh, debt deal approved, if it's an earnings disappointment, remember this market multiple is inflated and it's inflated because it's expecting earnings to deliver. So I think if we work through a few quarters of that, I think investors, if they sit tight till next year, are going to be pleased they did and should consider expanding exposure to stocks on any pullback or weakness. All right. Mark Avalon, a pleasure. Thanks for your time.
Good to be here. From Potomac Wealth Advisors. Coming up, if the debt deal passes, some 20 million student loan borrowers will need to resume paying about $250 a month. Some say the typical is more like $400. Uh, anyway, starting late August. One of my next guests says that timing could spell trouble. He will tell us why next. Plus, Coinbase rallying today on the back of an upgrade, but one of our guests not buying it. He tells us why ahead. And as we head to break, here's a look at the markets. As mentioned, we've got a totally different picture depending on where you look. You can see the Dow. Now the S&P has turned negative by a point. 4204. The Russell 2000s are down half a percent today. The Nasdaq up a similar amount. The 10-year yield just a hair below 370. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to The Exchange. Federal student loan payments have been paused for more than three years. But as part of the debt ceiling agreement reached over the weekend, borrowers will likely have to resume making payments again in late August. And with recession concerns looming, our next guest says the move couldn't come at a worse time. Let's bring in Mark Zandi. He's chief economist at Moody's Analytics. Mark, it's good to see you. And I, I feel that every time we say the word recession, people are just going to be screaming at the TV saying, you know, it's not here. Where is it? Everything's fine. You know, it, it, but you know, articulate the concerns that you have and uh, about the timing of these repayments. Sure. And, I, you know, Kelly, just to be uh, uh, on bo- uh, uh, above board, I, I don't think a recession is going to happen. And I don't think the student loan uh, uh, in- payments are going to be the thing that pushes us in. But there are weight. Uh, you know, it's about 20 million student loan borrowers. Uh, they, they haven't been paying. They'll have to begin paying uh, more or less in September. By my calculations, $250 a month might be a little bit more, about $5 billion in increased payments per month. So you do a little bit of arithmetic, that'll shave a couple tenths of a percent off of GDP now over the coming year. Now, you know, in a more typical time, that's not really that big a deal. You know, the economy can digest that gracefully. But in the current environment with the economy as weak as it is, recession risks as high as they are, you know, a couple tenths of a percent, you know, can matter. But uh, I don't think that this is what's going to push us in. But it's certainly a, a weight at a pretty significantly opportune, inopportune time. You know, I think there's also some people who have to restart those payments going, what was the point? You know, it's nice to have the freed up capital for the, that period of time. But, you know, three years of, let's say, 250 or for whatever the payment is, I mean, a lot of people would have finished paying off those loans had the payments kept going. And now it's like, OK, now I face just having to draw this out for another three years' time, and maybe I'm trying to buy a house, and those costs per month are also sky high. So, it, you know, it's probably going to leave a very sour taste. Well, yeah, I mean, no one wants to start, you know, they weren't paying, now they're going to pay. But at the end of the day, they that was their decision, right? They could have still kept on paying. They, I mean, I, I would suspect most people understood that this was a temporary moratorium on payments because of the pandemic. Go back to the middle of the pandemic, people can go, get, get to work, you know, the labor markets were disrupted. It was pretty dark time. This was an effort to help uh, alleviate the pressure on a group of people that are you know, generally younger, they generally are lower income if they have any income, and this makes life a little bit easier for them. But you're right. I mean, here we are, you know, three years later, and they're going to have to resume making those payments. And I suspect for, for a fair share of them, they might not be able to make it, right? Because I'm, I, my guess is they've mostly adjusted their spending to the higher, more cash they had. Now that cash is going away, so they're going to have to face some hard choices here. What do I do? What do I Stop paying on my credit card. My uh, am I uh, late on my rent payment? It's just going to increase, uh, you know, the kind of juggling that people are going to have to do. But it, 
but you know, back in the day, you, you know, I think they looked at it as a, a very positive thing, not yeah. a negative thing. We've even heard analysts, you know, downgrade or, or be cautious about, you know, gym memberships and the like. If people say, okay, I have to cut something, and and what is that something going to be? So it could have more of a micro impact or be felt more in some places than others. Um, you know, and I think there was this hope that maybe some something would magically, because the Biden administration talked a lot about this, about trying to, you know waive those payments altogether. I mean, there's been enough rhetoric that I think there might have been a hope of maybe this will just go away, right? I mean, the Biden administration now is hoping that this 10 or $20,000 that they're hoping to put, that the Supreme Court allows them to push that through, and that'll kind of offset for lower income borrowers. So there has been a lot of happy talk about getting rid of student debt. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, the uh, student loan forgiveness plan that the president you know, put forward uh, is still in play. Uh, but as you point out, the Supreme Court is going to rule on this uh, shortly. And the, the betting is, the thinking is that they're going to strike this down. So it's, it's not going to work as a, a way to provide relief. But the administration has also juiced up a so-called income repayment plan. So these are plans where you're under a lot of stress and you're shelling out a high share of your income to student loan payments. You can get a break. And if you you know pay for a certain period of time and you're still not paying that debt off, you can have some of that debt forgiven, if not all of it. So there are other ways to, you know, kind of navigate around this. But uh, I, yeah. I don't think the odds are that we're not going to get the full forgiveness plan as the president has envisaged. Right. No. And you wonder a little bit about those incentives where, OK, if your income is below 125K, you can qualify for, you know, so there to people has to be pretty powerful to make sure that their income doesn't go above that level, even though it might be a high class problem to have. With the labor market, I mean, do you see it weakening considerably in the months to come? Because that'll be a big determinant, obviously, of whether people can make payments of all kinds going forward. I, I do. I, th I expect the labor market to slow here uh, meaningfully. I mean, we're, uh, average monthly job growth is 250, 250,000 per month. We're going to get another read, obviously, on uh, on Friday. Uh, and I suspect it's going to be closer to 200,000, given the data that we have. But, you know, I do think the Federal Reserve is going to ensure that we get something sub 100K per month, because that would be consistent with getting unemployment notching a little bit higher here. And uh, I think that's what they'll need to get wage growth and inflation back down something close to their target. So I, I think uh, I would count on the labor market uh, weakening here. I, one thing I will say, though, uh, Kelly, the labor market is incredibly resilient. Businesses do not want to lay off workers uh, because they know their number one problem is going to be finding and retaining workers. And in that context, while I think the labor market will slow, I don't think it will fall apart. And if we don't see more layoffs, I just don't see a recession. Right, of course. It's sort of the labor hoarding theory. What's the GDP hit from the debt deal, do you think? Is it is it even there? Is it slight? Is it substantial? It's a tenth or two by my calculation. Uh, and that's also assuming that the Federal Reserve doesn't react to that. I mean, that mm -hmm. the, everything, all else being equal with regard to policy, It'll shave one to two tenths of percent of GDP growth between the fourth quarter of this year and the fourth quarter of next year when the peak impact will, will occur. That's 150,000 jobs. That's a tenth of a percent on unemployment. So, you know, again, not great, kind of sort of in the ballpark of what the student loan debt moratorium ending might mean, but it's not enough to do the economy, in, in, in my view. All right, Mark, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time today. Sure. Thank you. Mark Zandi of Moody's. Coming up, a funding frenzy. The boom in AI is widely expected to boost capital to startups working in that field, but it could also kickstart spending in another part of the valley. We have those details ahead. Plus, this streaming service, down about 33% this month, could be poised to unload assets, according to one firm. We have the name, the potential buyers, and what's at stake. And as we head to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map with Intel and Salesforce leading the way. While P&G is one of the biggest laggards, uh, believe it or not, today. Disney down a percent, Home Depot as well, uh, and 3M down one and a half percent. We're back after this.
Welcome back to the exchange that mentioned a moment ago. The S&P has turned negative. It's clinging on to 4,200, literally by a couple tens at this point. So we'll watch that again psychologically just as we look to close out the month. Dow down 145, about 50 points off session lows. NASDAQ positive. Let's look at some of the losers and winners today to kind of give you a sense of what's driving all of this. In the retail space, Target and Dollar General are both hitting 52-week lows today. This is a 3.5% sell-off for Target. Dollar General down uh, about a percent and a half. So again, both of these at 52-week lows. Energy also under some pressure with crew down more than 4% today. Dominion and Eversource, 52-week lows of their own. Uh, Dominion now unchanged. Eversource down about half a percent. Uh, but again, this is building on a whole period now of declines where these are really just the capstone. And of course, it'll sound repetitive, but big tech is outperforming again today. Microsoft, Apple, Netflix, Meta, all at levels not seen since really the market peak in late 2021 and early 22. Here's your prices, 177 for Apple, Netflix, Meta. They've really more than doubled Netflix up more than 3%. That's kind of your outperformer other than NVIDIA today. Over to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Always NVIDIA's. Kelly, thank you very much. Five people unaccounted for after an apartment building partially collapsed in Davenport, Iowa over the weekend. Davenport's mayor gave the update today amid criticism the city's moving too quickly to demolish the building before making sure no one is still inside. Protests erupted after a woman was rescued Monday night, hours after the city ordered the demolition to begin as early as Tuesday. A federal court ruling is clearing the way for OxyContin maker Purdue Pharma to settle thousands of legal claims over the opioid crisis. Under the new plan, the wealthy Sackler family is protected from opioid lawsuits. The Sacklers would give up ownership of Purdue, which would become a new company whose profits would be used to address the opioid crisis. They would also contribute up to $6 billion in cash over time, of which $750 million would go to individual opioid victims. The second private mission to the International Space Station is headed back to Earth. The four-person crew completed more than 20 science experiments during their eight days aboard the ISS. The mission is set to splash down off the coast of Florida later this evening. Kelly, back to you. See you in a half hour. All right, Tyler. Sounds good. Thank you. Coming up, there's only one more trading day in May after today, and the SMH is clocking a nearly 22% gain this month. But while some are taking money off the table, others say tech history points to a sustained rally from here. We will tell you why next. Welcome back. NVIDIA, the first chip maker to hit a market cap of a trillion dollars. It's trading at all-time highs today, along with these names you see, Broadcom, OnSemi, which have paired some gains, Applied Materials, AMD, LAM Research at 52-week highs of their own. Those big moves are fueling concerns about a bubble in the sector, but history suggests there could yet be more room to run. Deirdre Bosa joins us to explain in today's edition of Tech Check. Deirdre? So, Kelly, I've showed you this chart before because I think it's a good one. And some people are looking at it as an analogy, perhaps, for this platform shift we're currently seeing. It's the it's the shift to mobile Internet. Semis, that yellow part of the chart, they were first to be recognized by the markets. They enabled and monetized the new technology. Infrastructure devices came next. Then the platforms themselves think Google, mobile search and Amazon. Back then, though, the semis were at the forefront, and they were names like Qualcomm and Arm. This time, it is undoubtedly NVIDIA. But what else could be here? Investors, they're looking forward to Broadcom earnings this week. Can it monetize its part in the AI hype cycle and talk up AI-related growth this year? Expectations are extremely high. Paired some gains today, but it's up some 25% or so since B of A called it the most underappreciated AI play about a week ago. 
Bernstein this morning, though, wrote, and this just relates to this huge surge in these AI names that we've seen this year. They said that if there was ever a year to consider the sell in May maxim, it might be this one. There's good reason to take money off the table, of course, after the run-up in those seven stocks we've talked about that have led the broader market gains this year. But if generative AI is even more revolutionary than the mobile internet shift, going back to that first chart, which many smart people here believe it is, there could be more trillion-dollar companies to come. And Kelly, it's interesting to look at the evolution of big tech. First, it was FANG with four letters. Then it was FANG with an extra A. Now it's what some are calling, what is it this morning? I think the Magnificent Seven, right? So instead of big tech giving up its leadership, there's only more entering that trillion-dollar club, more big tech becoming bigger, more names entering sort of this leadership. Oh, I like that. So it kind of starts as the narrow fang and, and broadens out to ma, ma, or ba, ba, or whatever we want to call it. <laughs> I haven't thought of a good acronym yet, but yes, <laughs> because we're there's past like seven point. letters. No, I totally take your point that, you know, you get to a certain, uh, it, it's silly to try to, you know, come up with a four, just four letters and four stocks anymore. Um, but what do you do when you're starting out with NVIDIA at a market cap of a trillion dollars, right? Like what's the next layers to rise feel like that's where the, the next money is to be made. Right. And so, right, when we think about that chart, we think about the mobile internet shift. It was the chip makers first. And then you saw, you know, Google and Apple and Microsoft and Amazon become trillion dollar companies, right? They only got bigger and bigger. So if you think that, you know, the shift, the generative AI shift is going to be as big or bigger, there could be more trillion dollar companies to come. Or we could just see big tech continue to get bigger and bigger. Um, but, you know, there, there's more to come here, and the market recognizes it at different points. So, yes, it's the chip makers now, but what's going to be next? A lot of folks are talking about data analytics, Kelly, and it's really this is the gold or the oil, whatever you want to call it, in this next shift. So you could look at companies like Databricks. Um, CRM could be interesting tomorrow, Salesforce, right, because they made that acquisition a while ago of Tableau, and that's just crunching data. But that's what a lot of people here in the Valley say is that, the models are going to be and the data sets are going to be most important because that's building these large language models. That's a really interesting point. Deirdre, thank you. We appreciate it. Deirdre Bosa. We'll talk to my next guest about that. But also first, can the AI boom save commercial real estate? Wolf Research recently said the investment rush into artificial intelligence could lead to a surge in spending on data centers and even a flurry of office leasing in Silicon Valley. That could help stave off growing pressures on the sector. But are we putting too much on the emergence of AI as a major market force? Let's ask Sam Lesson, partner at Slow Ventures. Sam, it's good to see you again. And, and what do nice you think? You. Is it hype or justified? Go ahead. Hype. <laughs> it's pretty simple. I mean, yeah, look, the answer is everyone's excited about um, some of the opportunities around AI. They are real. I think this idea that the, the winners of last generation are going to win in AI again and compound their lead, I think, is basically correct. Um, but this idea that all this, that commercial real estate is going to be somehow saved by AI, um, I think, is a bridge too far for me. Uh, it sounds a little silly. Well, <laughs> let, let, maybe you can enlighten us. You know, how bad is the sort of office activity? And in, in let's—I mean, we all know San Francisco, right? But in Silicon Valley, totally different story. What's the situation like there? And do you think that all all of a sudden, all these people going, "Well, I want to be the next." NVIDIA or Databricks or whatever it is, are going to be, you know, crowded into this, these offices working on executing that plan. 
You know, look, I think the reality is, is that this is not um, a boom that is very conducive to startups. So sure, there's a bunch of VCs plowing a bunch of money in. Um, there's a moment. There will be a lot of companies started. But the reality, especially when it comes to commercial real estate, what you really need to drive commercial real estate is companies that are growing unbelievably quickly, adding tons of people and are very successful as startups versus, and I think what you're going to see really is that this, this boom is really a boom that's going to be dominated almost completely by the incumbents. Um, so I would not expect some sort of Silicon Valley, you know, uh, thousands of startups that are going to be super successful and grow to big headcounts and need tons of people to drive the commercial real estate story anytime soon. It's a great point about kind of where where we are in the in the cycle. But what about your just point? And maybe you can tell us where do people think the next wave of successful I'll use the word startups or, um, you know, successful investment dollars will be going on top of AI. Is it kind of data analytics? And she mentioned Tableau and Databricks and companies like this. You know, talk to me about whether and where uh, that path will lead. You know, look, I think that the, the big thing people are missing about AI is that it really is just an accelerant or propellant to a lot of what's already there. So you can take Adobe and add AI and it's a great story, right? You can take Meta and add AI, and it's a great story. You can take almost anything where there are products that all of a sudden with generative AI, you can make better, more efficient, create better consumer experiences. So it's not that this stuff won't permeate everything. It will, and it will be very powerful from that perspective. But it is interesting because I don't think that there are big themes to play, right? I think it's just good business and good startups um, that you can push in, in a lot of different ways. Now, in Silicon Valley, there's the special case of people who are specifically investing in deep tech or AI around it. Most of that stuff is going to go to zero. Some of it might be successful, but you know that's not going to be a big story. I think the big story is just going to be everything gets slightly better, right? And that slightly better can create improved margins. It can create new consumer experiences, et cetera. But I don't think there's some big thematic specific play like analytics that's completely revolutionized by this. The one thing that does make sense to me, though, is, is data centers, because when NVIDIA comes out and raises its revenue, not to $8 billion is for not to nine, not to 10, but to 11 and all of a sudden is talking about data centers. I mean, and you go, we're going to be a nation of data centers and, you know, self-storage. I mean, that, that's what is working in commercial real estate right now. And it does feel like there's going to be a huge data center growth uh, in order to get that compute in one place. There will be data center growth. And the big conversation really in AI right now is will how much of AI will be done centrally in these big data centers versus migrate out to your phones, right, and be done locally. You know, the, you know there'll be a little bit on the edge. There'll be, like, different, you know, topologies of networks. So it will all evolve. And, yeah, there will be investment in data centers. But again, I don't think it's going to be a massive revolution and step change versus, you know, it will be growth, right? There will be new opportunities. And what I think you'll see is the big cloud providers, the Amazons, the Microsofts, they're going to dominate this, right? Um, more than anyone else. How bad would sentiment be in the Valley right now if it weren't for the AI boom, right? Wouldn't it, uh, would, what would we have to talk about otherwise? Well, <laughs> no, there are things to talk about. You know, I think that the thing that's interesting is, you know, Silicon Valley and a lot of these things are thematically driven, right? And themes are great because everyone can talk about them and glom onto them and do their take on them. And if, you know, if you want to move billions of dollars of LP capital, it's really easy to say, well, we're on the theme of blank right now. You know, I think we probably are in a moment where this theme is overblown. People are putting too much money in, too irresponsibly at too high valuations, at least in the startup world, um, into these things because it's easy, right? You're on theme. But the reality is, you know, the beauty of technology and where we are is there's a thousand interesting businesses to fund in every moment, right? Um, they might not be the sexy theme, right, of the moment. But, you know, when we're looking at small business opportunities and things like that, there are all sorts of platform opportunities and new things. 
Uh, you just have to be careful whenever you get, whenever the world is too excited about a theme, yeah. whether it's AI or blockchain or whatever, right? You, you, you know, your skepticism should go up. No, I, I very well said. Sam, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. Sam Lesson with Slow Ventures. Goldman Sachs reportedly repair, preparing for another round of layoffs. This according to the Wall Street Journal, breaking just a few moments ago. The move would mark Goldman's third round of cuts in less than a year would affect fewer than 250 jobs, but it does come as the big financial firms feel the pain from a plunge in deal-making activity. Goldman shares still down about 1% on the session. Still ahead, we now know who's playing in this year's NBA Finals, but where will we be watching future games? The potential $5 billion a year battle brewing among media companies, and who's poised to win? That's next. Welcome back. Shares of Netflix and Paramount, that was the mystery chart we teased. Climbing higher today, both companies getting a boost from analysts, but for two very different reasons. Julia Borston here with the details. What do you see, Julia? Well, Kelly, let's start off with Paramount. Shares of that media giant surging on a Wolf Research upgrade from underperformed to peer perform That came out late Friday. The firm saying that National Amusements plans to borrow $125 million raises the odds of Paramount selling off assets accretively, saying they expect Sherry Redstone to be what they call, quote, increasingly negotiable about the prices at which she would sell assets, both large and small, which they say will limit downside for investors. Meanwhile, Netflix shares are up over 3% on Bernstein, pointing to data from a company called Yipit, which shows that the paid sharing crackdown is working very well in the U.S., though less so in the U.K., Now, with an increasing focus on profitability rather than just those subscriber numbers, getting people borrowing passwords to start paying for access to Netflix is seen as a key for the streamer. Kelly? But it, so Paramount could be not under duress, but forced to make these sales? Well, I think the question is whether they're more open to making these sales. There's been a lot of speculation in the past that some of those assets owned by Paramount, um, whether it's the studio itself or whether it's some of their TV assets, would be ripe for acquisition and whether this would be a good time for them to sell off some of those assets or maybe combine with another company so they could have more scale in the streaming wars. So there was tons of advertising for Max, by the way, on the uh, NBA game. Like literally, Julia, every there were long trailers and you know, buried little clips every, which is a good transition to talk about, to you about the NBA more broadly. Who's going to get the rights here? It, it, I heard a podcast with Jimmy Pitaro recently where he, say, he seemed to say, like, look, we have a really good working relationship with the NBA. They are really happy with the direction this is going. And he didn't sound like he wanted to lose that. Yeah, that's right. And, and certainly ESPN is a key partner for the NBA. And as the finals start this week, those rights negotiations are heating up. Now, current rights holders, which is ESPN, which is, of course, owned by Disney and TNT, which is owned by Warner Brothers Discovery, they are currently in an exclusive negotiating window ahead of their combined $2.7 billion a year contracts expiring in 2025. When that exclusive window expires, we can expect interest from streamers, including Amazon and Apple. Amazon is already partnered with the NBA to stream games in Brazil. And of course, it's shown its expertise with sports streaming with the NFL games that it has. Meanwhile, Apple is showing its growing interest in sports, 
having bought up streaming rights to both soccer and baseball. Now, the NBA is in the spotlight right now as all other major sports rights are tied up for years. And it's worth noting that playoffs ratings were up meaningfully from last year, while regular season ratings were pretty much flat with last year. Now, sources tell me that the league would like to split up its rights between at least two companies so we could see streaming rights split up um, and also some rights still going to that linear TV bundle. Yeah, the last major uh, sports deal, really, to be up for some time is hugely important. Julia, thank you. Julia Borson. Coming up, shares of Coinbase up nearly 13% so far this month. And while they got an upgrade today, one analyst says he's seeing a troubling trend emerge. We'll dive into that next. Richmond Fed President Thomas Barkin just speaking at an NBAE event. Let's get to Steve Leesman with those headlines. Hi, Steve. Hey, Kelly. Yeah, uh, uh, Tom Barkin from Richmond saying Fed policy is right now in restrictive territory, but there is uncertainty around where rates need to go. Sounds kind of neutral, but then the next thing he says, he goes, he says he has one of the higher rate forecasts on the committee and he hasn't, quote, backed off of that yet, at least. So he could be in the five and a half range, which kind of tells you maybe he thinks the Fed has more to do. Doesn't say when it has to do it, but he does say he said inflation is going to be stubborn, uh, more stubborn than many people would hope. And he's looking to be convinced that demand is coming down and that that's going to bring down inflation. One good thing you heard, he's hearing less about the risk from wage increases. Um, important to say here, he's also pointing out that he's not hearing much about the banking uh, uh, trouble out there. Points out that the banking uh, numbers from last Friday from the Fed were pretty healthy when it came to lending. So um, it's another reason why the Fed could go ahead if it wanted to, because the banking issue and the debt default issues have both kind of looked like they're going away, Kelly. All right, Steve, we appreciate it. Steve Leesman reporting. Keep an eye on the market. Largely sure. unch. Dow still down 150. Meantime, crypto having a strong start to the week. Coinbase shares higher on an upgrade to overweighted Atlantic equities. Bitcoin up more than 2%, holding on to its nearly 70% gain so far this year. Coinbase and Bitcoin largely trading in tandem. But my next guest says there's a growing divergence in price action and volume that could mean trouble. Joining me now is Mizuho analyst Dan Dolive. It's good to see you again, Dan. What what bothers you? Now, we should add, you're no Coinbase fan here. No. <laughs> no. Long-time bear, I don't know, a long-time bear, on the vociferous bear on the stock. But what do you think is going on lately with the price of Bitcoin and Coinbase and all the rest of it? Yeah, thanks. And, and, you know, we've been bearish, like, to give us, you know, credit. We've been bearish since day one when everyone was dreaming the dream. I think what's going on right now is that retail is dead. So if you think about it, 95% of Coinbase's, re- you know, revenue uh, trading revenue comes from retail investors, and retail is basically dead. We track volumes every day. They are at an all-time low. Even wow. today, as a stock is ripping, they're at an all-time low. It just shows you there's a huge disconnect between volumes and the stock. You know, and some are saying, well, it's great. You know, look at Bitcoin. It's got institutional support, and they haven't bailed. But may, that may well be the case for Bitcoin long-term. Who, who knows? But for Coinbase, it's a, it's a big problem. It's a big problem because the way they make money is when you know, people come into the casino and, and gamble and people are just not doing it. And it's going to take years for people to come back. And that's why the stock today, I, I can't explain it, but it's going to end in tears. <laughs> Let me ask you about one you've been much more positive on, which is SoFi. As we now see that student loan payments are set to restart, a lot of people have pointed that they could benefit from those who are facing that and saying, you know, I definitely need to go in for a refi. That was their bread and butter. Is that going to be a, a big boon for them or is that, you know, over, 
overplayed. No, I think it's actually a huge boon because if you think about the stock, and we were talking about it just like two weeks ago, it's priced, it priced in like every bad thing that happened, including like an endless moratorium, student loan moratorium. And now that we're starting to talk about the end of it, then people are going to refinance and SoFi is going to make a lot of money. So for SoFi, all the bad news is priced in. None of the good news is priced in. And that's one you know, glimpse of good news. And there's an 8% pop in the shares today. Still well shy of your price target, which was 950 yeah, around there, there, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. Huge so upside. Still plenty of upside uh, if that pans out. Last thing to ask you about is what's been going on at PayPal, where big debate on the stock. You've done some work. Um, what do you sort of find at the heart of the investment thesis and a reason why you're positive on the shares today? Yes, yeah, so just a real quick 10 second. Like the big debate or the one of the big debates on the stock is that they're handing over discounts to get people to use the app. We did a 30 page deep dive today that actually shows you if you look at their transaction costs, there's no evidence of pricing concessions on PayPal side. That should be a huge sigh of relief to investors that people are actually using the app without pricing concessions. And that's why I think the stock is trading up today. Again, 30-page report, very detailed. That said, it still seems to me, just as a casual observer, that things like Apple Pay could just cannibalize the need for something like PayPal over time. Correct. And I think that's the biggest, that's why the stock is trading in, you know, in the 60s and not at 120 or 180. But there's a lot of optionality now with the end of the tenure of Dan Schulman, the CEO. The new person can come in, do something with rewards, do something with Venmo. There's just so many call options on PayPal today that are not priced in. And if you believe in it, you believe in those call options. What would, what would be the one to get you most excited for the new CEO to do? I think rewards is like probably the most interesting thing because you know people use credit cards because of rewards and PayPal has done really, they bought Honey uh, for that a few years ago, but they really did nothing with that. So if they can actually get it right, it will be a huge thing. We will, Dan, a, a tour de force of the whole FinTech space today. Thank you, Dan Dollar. We appreciate it. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. For more analysis on markets and the economy, sign up for my newsletter. You can go to cnbc.com slash newsletters or scan the QR code on your screen. And we should mention the Dow's still down 150, but both the S&P and the NASDAQ uh, have briefly turned positive, uh, negative, I should say, during the session. The NASDAQ giving up about a half percent increase. We'll see if those barking comments have anything to do with it. That's next on Power Lunch, along with the trillion dollar trades and three stock lunch. Tyler is getting ready and I'll join you on the other side of that break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place.